Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Jacob Williams. You are most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam, Paul. It's great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on. Um, for those who don't know, Jacob Williams, who, by the way, is not actually related to me, although we have the same name, um, is a PhD candidate at Oxford University, researching the relationship between religion and politics in modern society. He entered Islam in 2017, and his writings have been published in First Things, The Critic, Spiked, and The Imaginative Conservative. He has worked with Muslim parents groups to protest, sorry, protect freedom of religious education and helped, helped build bridges with Christian organizations, including the Alliance Defending Freedom. Now, I first came across the writings of Jacob in an article in the American Christian journal, First Things, which I used to read uh, religiously when I was a Christian myself. Um, the article uh, was entitled, Why I Became Muslim. Uh, it's a beautifully eloquent piece of writing, I think, and I will link to it in the description below. And I'd like to just to quote a paragraph uh, from the article, if I may. I think it's particularly interesting and might be a good introduction to uh, your intellectual journey. You write, C.S. Lewis, that's the Christian apologist, argued that a man claiming to be God must be either a lunatic, a liar or truly the Lord. Likewise, uh, a man claiming to be a messenger of God must either be insane, dishonest, or just what he says he is. I judged, based on my reading of history, that Muhammad, peace be upon him, could not have been either of the former two. The facts of his life and ministry reveal an honest man in full possession of his rational faculties. By contrast, it wasn't hard for me to avoid Lewis's trilemma because Muslims simply do not believe that Jesus, peace be upon him, ever claimed to be God. Rather, we hold him to have been another prophet like Moses, Abraham and Isaac, peace be upon them all. The final piece of the puzzle fell into place upon my learning of the long process of redaction, that's the word meaning editing, and recomposition that produced the canon that became the Bible. This was consistent with the Islamic narrative of an earlier revelation that, though true, was imperfectly preserved. The Quran was, a unific was the unification and confirmation of what the Bible merely tried to assemble. So I think that's a, a marvellous uh, quote. And just another sentence from another paragraph where you write, this then was the hardest part, opening my heart to the truth of Islam and ceasing to see it as another destabilising force, alien to the tradition I loved. End quote. V an awful lot there. But could you perhaps explain how you uh, achieved uh, this movement to to, to see the truth of Islam and presumably no longer seeing it as a destabilizing force and alien to the tradition that you loved? Mm. Well, as I see it, there, there are two parts of that question. There's how I came to see the truth of Islam and how I came to see it as not an alienating or destabilizing force, because it is, of course, logically possible that the truth could be alienating and destabilizing in various ways we may not like, and that just might be how things are. But... They weren't, they weren't entirely separate questions in my mind, partly because, like everyone, I did not approach this question from a 
completely detached standpoint. I wasn't raised a Christian, but uh, attended a church school, had a cultural attachment to Christianity, and and an attachment to to British and Western traditions generally, which predisposed me to see the world a certain way. So there's the rational process of coming to accept the truth of the two shahadas, that there is no God except God, and that Muhammad is the messenger of God. And that's more or less been summarized by the quote that you gave there. So mm-hmm. I suppose the only part of that process that, that wasn't explicitly addressed was the the issue of the Trinity, which is the other big concern, of course, that Muslims have with with Christian conceptions of God and mm-hmm. the way in which that is supposed to operate. And there are many Christian scholars who try to explain it in, in different ways. But I came to the conclusion this is not really coherent. It, it simply doesn't make sense, which in fact, some Christian scholars also affirmed and said that that's, that's somehow a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that was another reason for preferring the, the unitary conception of God in Islam, that God is one, uh, Tawheed, as Muslims call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the emotional aspect or the cultural aspect, which you touched on as well. Why I came to see Islam is not necessarily a destabilizing force. And and there, I, I suppose I should preface um, everything I say on this and, and on other matters like this, that I'm not an Islamic scholar and everything I say is not supposed to be the correct interpretation of Islam. It's just supposed to be a suggestion of how certain thoughtful people might want to begin interpreting or thinking um, about what is authoritative in the religion. So um, I suppose the thought process that I went through was that, well, Islam has taken, although the core of Islam remains the same, the specific social and cultural forms that it's taken in different periods of history have varied to a certain extent, and that a lot of the worries that people in the West have about Islam either relate to misunderstanding or relate to specific cultural or social forms that are not essential to the religion. Uh, to give... So interrupt you, could you give an example of the kind of misunderstandings about Islam that are quite common in the West, in fact not true, as you discovered in your studies? Hmm. Well, I, I think that very often it isn't necessarily that there's specific beliefs people have about islam that are that are, that are simply false it's more often a, a mix of messy half truths or judgments disguised as truths so uh, for instance one of the things that, that concerned me was the um position of the islamic jurisprudence on family relationships women's rights etc and a lot is said about this that islam oppresses women etc yeah. by Westerners, yeah, and looking at this more more deeply, I, I came to the conclusion that Islam, like Christianity, like all traditional religions, has a set of guidelines for the appropriate conduct of marriage and personal relationships, mm. and that those guidelines need not be more restrictive than the guidelines that traditionally existed in, in Christian society until a few decades ago, and indeed, in certain respects, yeah. are less restrictive. Yeah, that's a great irony, isn't it? That Islam, uh, seen by some now as being uh, other and alien, as you put it, is actually quite similar to many of the uh, uh, the social morals uh, and relationships that we see in uh, a previous, just a previous generation uh, earlier earlier in the 20th century. So there's a great irony there that Islam is, in a sense, articulating a worldview that uh, has rapidly been lost uh, in the West. So it's not alien at all. It's part of our history. It, it complements it. 
Mm. Uh, well, it's very interesting if you look at the writing of certain so-called Orientalists a century ago who say, well, Muslims are sexually um, ir irascible and, and excessive. Mm. Now the exact opposite point is made, which somewhat must cast doubt on the origin of these secular moral values that are invoked to criticize Islam. Yeah, I think there's another, uh, if I may, another uh, uh, lovely quote here uh, about the, about how when you became a Muslim, when you embraced Islam, you, re you, write, you write, I did not change my name, my style of dress or my diet, save that I now take halal beef with my eggs rather than bacon. Lovely touch. Um, I enjoy the Anglo-Muslim poetry and music produced by my co-religionists over the last century and a half. And this, this I really like. I am still moved by the landscapes of Constable, and I still feel that Shakespeare offers among the deepest insights of any writer into the vicissitudes of the human soul. Above all, the vapid global consumer monoculture dissipates when I undergo submission to the one true God. I appreciate the best of the West, not despite being a Muslim, but because of it. And I, I think that's an extraordinary insight. And, and if only it was more widely known in the West, particularly in educator or, or intellectual circles, uh, that, that in fact there is this profound congruence uh, between a traditional Islamic perspective and uh, the best in the West, as you put it. Mm. I mean, you mentioned, uh, well, I mentioned Shakespeare as an example. So one of the writers whose uh, biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him, I read, before entering Islam is Martin Lings. And interestingly enough, he also published a, I uh, wouldn't say a Muslim analysis, but a, a spiritual analysis of Shakespeare's plays that is that is compatible with Islam. And there is definitely a, a sense in which embracing a, a, a religion that is, well, that it, first of all is determinate and that offers deeper values than this secular uh, melange of, of, of impulse. Um, and particularly a, a religion that, that's monotheistic and obviously shares a, a history with the West too, does allow you to reconnect with these cultural sources at a deeper level. And the way that Shakespeare, to extend that example, is studied in the modern academy is usually just what insights does he have into power relationships? Everything reduces into this kind of... Really? Is that, is that how he's taught? Uh, I, I didn't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm exaggerating and generalizing, of course. Right. But for the most part, that's how literature is taught. It's It's an insight into power relationships that the author was imbricated in. This is, this is Foucault, isn't it? This is the French... Well, uh, French I mean, Foucault is important, not the only writer who's important, but yes, I mean, it's very often it's um, on a popular level, it's it's a sort of simplified version of Foucault. Um, I mean, Foucault is, is sort of misunderstood in lots of ways. I think he had many important insights, but there's certainly this tendency to to ignore the idea that this literature could have any real insight into any enduring truth about humanity. It's just a, a contingent historical artifact that tells you about particular patterns of oppression or patriarchy in 17th century England. And that's obviously a view that actually robs people of their heritage. Absolutely. Uh, and you eloquently describe how it's not just robbing the sense of heritage, which your uh, fellow students at Oxford uh, protested against. You mentioned the Christian, conservative Christians uh, mm. protesting against this, but you felt, you, you said there's a deeper problem and that it was uh, approaching uh, destruction of the self. It wasn't just an anti-Western narrative. It was uh, much more profoundly an existential threat to the, the humanity of what it is to be human, it, breaking mm. us up into an assemblage of desires, I think you put it. Or, mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is really important, and and in many ways, my PhD research now is is about this exact question because 
within what we call the liberal tradition, there are two broad tendencies. And one view is, is what theorists like myself, or as I will be, uh, God willing, uh, call it, is one view is called comprehensive liberalism, which is a particular set of beliefs about what is good for a human being, which mostly result to satis uh, you know, um, connect to satisfying desires. So I think this view is extremely damaging and harmful. I think it's connected to a lot of the uh, movements for self-described liberation that are so powerful these days. And taken to its final logical extreme, yes, it can break apart one's entire selfhood. Mm. Um, as Hamlet put it, what is a man if the chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed a beast no more? And we are becoming beasts in certain ways. But there is also, I think, this higher tradition in liberal thought that, that strives for a kind of neutrality um, between different worldviews, including this extreme secular liberal one and religious or traditional or others. Um, so that's what I'm working on now is how perhaps as, as Muslims or other traditional believers, we can find a way of um, not only surviving, but actually being valued and valuing the modern or liberal order in which we live without losing our humanity, even though there are certainly elements within it that tend that way. Yes. I mean, the writings of John, John Locke, I was, I was reading a couple of his books mm. recently, is often seen as the, the father of uh, political liberalism or theoretical liberalism. Did, did you see his, uh, his, his influence ultimately as malign or, or as beneficial? I know modern liberalism now has gone beyond that. It, it, mm. it's, it's become very partisan and advocating particular worldviews under the name of liberalism. But he, mm. he seems to be stepping back from that and you know giving people space to have their own freedom to articulate their their views but do you see that as a a, a bit of a uh, a mirage and in fact within his philosophy lie the seeds the, the of uh contemporary liberalism well i i think that to look at Locke one way or the other the the thing is that people say philosophy doesn't progress and in a way it doesn't but it does become more sophisticated and nuanced and Locke's philosophy now compared to the writings of say john rawls who is the most influential political theorist of the last half century looks very, very simplistic. So he doesn't make distinctions that we now recognize and want to make. For example, the distinction between um, freedom as, as uh, tolerating or, or welcoming different beliefs about what is good for humanity and freedom as choice being good for humanity is not a distinction that's particularly explicit in Locke. So I think there's a lot of leeway in how you read these classical writers one way or the other. Uh, one thing in Locke that is quite pertinent is he says that um, Catholics and atheists could not be included in a free society because exactly. of their political disloyalty. And there's a strong analogy between what the right now say about uh, Muslims, actually. Gosh, yes, he does say that. He, he says we cannot, uh, we cannot tolerate atheists because how can we trust them? They don't believe in God. Right. You know, they're, they're not reliable. They have no fear of, of God. And, and Catholics, of course, because of their allegiance to another power, you know, the, the Vatican and so on, which at that point really did have muscle, mm -hmm. political muscle and economic and military muscle. So that was a real issue. Uh, there's often overlooked that the, the, the father of liberalism was very illiberal when it came to those two groups. But mm -hmm. he said nice things about Muslims, I think, and Jews. Uh, uh, in, he, in I'm not completely certain. But he, he may have said relatively, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. relatively. His letter of, of, his letter of toler his tolerance, mm -hmm. that tolerance yeah. he mentions. Uh, but yeah, okay. I mean, 
another question I have about the writer Roger Scruton, and he, he's mm. a very prominent uh, conservative philosopher uh, and writer, numerous books. Sadly, he passed away just a couple of years ago. And I, I know you you read him, and I, I, I've read some of his work. And what one, one of his books that I really like was Falls, uh, Falls, Frauds, and Firebrands, Thinkers of the mm. New Left, where he rips into people like Foucault and, mm. and Sartre and others with extraordinary intellectual power and, and uh, wit uh, as well. But do you think he's someone uh, that Muslims uh, should read, or is he really not relevant? Mm. Well, uh, I, I like that you mentioned that book. I'd have to disagree with you on this. I, uh, for my sins, actually read all of Scruton's books, and I think this is possibly his worst, personally, because... Oh, oh, I, controversial. Why do you think it's his worst book? My reason for thinking that is that it, in this book, he he picks up on various strands of... Uh, continental, you know, post-structural, post-modern thought, but he doesn't really dis properly distinguish between the different currents of thought that that exist there. He often caricatures them or has a fairly surface level understanding um, of what they're saying. And some of his points may hit the mark, but many of them hit the mark only by sort of happy coincidence. And he ignores the value that's often found in those thinkers. So uh, he had a very, um, this book was severely, damaging to his reputation. I think somewhat understandable given that it's a this very, very, very quite viciously in places personal attack on thinkers without showing full awareness of, of the debates they were involved in. But um but on your broader question, yeah, I mean I mean I think that Scruton is a very, very interesting writer and there's a lot um a lot in his writing that's very valuable. And for Muslims, um I think that I think that from the perspective of someone perhaps who who is born and raised into Islam, mm -hmm. one way in which these kind of works are useful is that they allow us to abstract from, or, or to, to sort of imaginatively abstract from the commitments that we hold as Muslims to understand that the inner life of persons of other religions, uh, yeah. traditions, there are certain parallels and analogies and things that keep cropping up, which yeah. again is something that Islam affirms through the idea of the human fitra that all humans have, regardless of the religion or otherwise that we are uh, explicitly members of. Yeah, I think that ability to detach uh, oneself from uh, one's own uh, beliefs and interests when one is considering another worldview to actually try and objectively appreciate, not necessarily accept or agree, is, is such a, a wonderful thing to be able to do because what one is not threatened by the book then, one can simply have a, uh, hopefully a detached uh, interest in reading it. And not everyone can do that. People sometimes think if you're quoting a book one disagrees with, you're agreeing with it. You must be agreeing right. with it. Well, no, uh, but, but one, one can appreciate it objectively without... Uh, succumbing to its argument, yep. and that, that's uh, a, a, an important skill, I think, that that some people all, all should have. I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So um, you you mentioned uh, in another place uh, in the same article, uh, which I'm reading from, I experience being Muslim and being British not as tension but as convergence, and this is something that many people might find hard to believe. Uh, and I don't mean because Islam is a problem here, but if being British means, as it seems to be, supporting uh, some core, you know, fairly militant radical ideas, say about LGBT, mm -hmm. uh, about being pro-Zionist, I have to mention this because that seems to be not just a foreign policy position, 
but an absolute of our culture now, literally, as we see the conflict in the Middle East coming about, any dissent from this seems to be at best very disapproved of and at worst criminalized. Um, and the, the rampant materialism of our society, not uniquely British, of course, we find that in the United States and other places. What What is there about being British that is not in tension then with Islam? And I'm being slightly kind of playful here because there must be some good things obviously about being British but it seems to me that things we are allegedly most proud about in being British many of these things are not really compatible with any traditional religious perspective be it a traditional Catholic or traditional Jew or traditional whatever or traditional Muslim that they are at odds and antithesis to that hmm. so, so well, what is this convergence then that you refer to do you think well any national or cultural identity is to a certain extent contested and, and continually being argued about. And some of the causes you cited are so incredibly recent that yeah. basing one's identity on them would make it very, very fragile indeed. And, you know, indeed. and to remind you that same-sex marriage was only legalized about eight years ago. Um, so I, I think that you said this earlier, and in fact, it was a quote from my article, the, the paintings of Constable, the literature of Shakespeare, the high culture, if you will, of Britain that has a certain, um, I mean, I don't know if one can say it has a certain specific vision, but there are certain tendencies, certain ways of viewing the world that are that are often prominent within it, like a kind of um, epistemic modesty, uh, you know, reluctance to, to um, impose one's way of thinking on others, or a belief in individualism, but in, in quite a different sense to the individualism of, of rampant materialism, the individualism of, um, um, uh, as uh, the first Queen Elizabeth put it, let, let us not make windows into men's souls, that there is a certain yeah. space yeah. individual that has a connection with God, and that is yeah. why it is valuable. Yes. Now that's I love that quote. I've forgotten about that. Uh, Elizabeth the first. Fascinating. I mean, I, I get this. I know what you mean, of course, uh, as a fellow Englishman. Um, and w when I go to France, which I often do, or in Germany, you know, I have a huge appreciation for some aspects of these uh, extraordinary nations. Yeah. There is a difference. You know, I feel like an Englishman when I'm in France. I feel like an Englishman when I'm in Germany, let alone being a Muslim, of course, which is. Uh, but but the difference is, uh, you know, in France, th this. Um, perhaps live and let live attitude that we traditionally have in England uh, is less evident. Uh, the expectation that we can form or submit uh, to uh, laicite, this kind of militant secularism, uh, which is not just about religion, it's ideological in a very wide, in a very encompassing sense. Um, and similarly, actually, in Germany, uh, which I've been going to quite a lot recently, and um, what, what one's distinctive English identity, which you, you referenced there, does quite come out by way of contrast, I think, uh, let alone Islamically, but where, of course, Laicite directly contradicts a uh, central tenet of Islam about secularism. Mm, mm. Yeah, then, of course, there's... Obviously, the one will find elements within different cultures that you can you can reinterpret or, or decontest and say, well, this element is congruent with this part of Islam, and, and that's excellent, but... Yes, there is a there is a sort of divide to a certain degree between Britain and the continent, and of course it goes back to how you, know, you mentioned Locke earlier that Britain for quite a long time was a relatively liberal Protestant regime that valued individualism in certain ways, mm -hmm. whereas on the continent you veer roughly from authoritarian Catholicism to um, authoritarian Jacobinism and revolutionary doctrines that just try to reimpose an opposite conception of what it is to be human, and and that's 
a big problem that still exists in political culture yeah. there. And and in, there is this argument as well from people like uh, Abdul Hakim Murad or Timothy Winter that has at least some merit, I think, that, that in Britain, um, xenophobia and racism were obviously very powerful, but they weren't formed as saliently through a conflict with Islam as they were in France with the legacy of Charles Martel, who literally tried to define Europe as the last bit of Europe that wasn't conquered by Muslims. And uh, that these narratives, this this not being Muslim has perhaps always been more fundamental to identities on the continent mm. than in Britain. Yes. No, that, that, that's an extraordinary um, insight. Um, can I just change the tack slightly? Uh, you, you're quite um, harsh about the Church of England, bless it, uh, <laughs> uh, Anglicanism. You talk about um, tepid, half-believing Anglicanism. Mm. Uh, and you quote Philip Larkin, the English poet's words, almost instinct, almost true. Um, and how, you know, that couldn't stop the spread of utopian progressivism on Britain's campuses and so on. But I mean, uh, it, it, it's it's almost a national sport, isn't it, to attack old Church of England? You know, it's a mm. slightly embarrassing, doddery uh, church. But what has gone, I mean, this is a huge question, of course, And uh, um, but what has gone wrong with Christianity in our country such that Islam now, to me at least, appears such a strong, believing, unchanged faith that doesn't seem to have been crippled by secularism, which the other churches seem to be to varying degrees. But particularly the Church of England, uh, which has been around for since Henry VIII's time, mm. um, why has it failed so catastrophically to meet the needs, the spiritual needs and aspirations of the British people? Uh, uh, and Islam seems to be the only one left standing with any integrity uh, as a faith that hasn't been, as I say, subverted by the harsh winds of secularism. It's very interesting that you interpreted those remarks as uh, as critical. This this idea that Anglicanism is is tepid. I mean, if one's a very very hot, wholly believing Anglican, perhaps that would be critical. I'm not sure how many such people there are. I I actually intended those remarks to be quite affectionate and complimentary, okay. um, on two levels. That firstly, uh, as I said in that quote from Larkin, almost instinct, almost true is. It, it's not truth, but it's better than nothing. And secondly, that from a Muslim standpoint, if we regard the essentials of Christianity as, well, aside from belief in God, which obviously is true, the essentials like the Trinity and the resurrection and the incarnation as, as false, if we regard them as false, then the fact that Anglicanism became so wishy-washy about those matters could almost be seen as a positive thing and a testament to English pragmatism that could never really fully embrace the total... Um, uh, in, in its totality, these doctrines that are very, very rationally troubling. So that was more what I had in mind. But as for why it's failed so catastrophically, I mean, uh, I assume that when you say fail to meet the needs, you're, you're talking about the you know deep decline in Anglican affiliation and, and practice. The church going, uh, I, I spoke to uh, Professor Lindo uh, Woodhead uh, yeah. here uh, recently from King's College, a sociologist of religion. Uh, and you know, there is a, a, a continual decline uh, over many decades, and, and yeah. the trajectory suggests a further decline in church attendance and even identification as a, a Christian, even in a cultural sense. And yeah. now it's a minority identification amongst the British people. The first time since, I don't know, since ever. Um, yeah. This is catastrophic. But Islam seems, according to her, to be the, uh, experiencing the opposite. It, it, it is yeah. uh, strongly uh, uh, emerging as uh, an identity and as a faith in Britain. Mm. Well, let's say you want to draw parallels. Um, I think what one thing one can look at is, well, 
modernity doesn't necessarily undermine all religious structures. What it tends to do, and this is a gross generalization, but what it often tends to do is it tends to polarize people into either rejection of religion to various degrees or um, the kind of embrace of a, uh, I try to use this term in a normatively neutral sense, decultured religion. So evangelical Christianity in the United States, which flourished and is now declining again, but for a, quite a while seemed to be defying secular trends, and Salafi forms of Islam, I would say both are decultured in that they reject the sort of ossified medieval hierarchies and, and cultural instantiations of religion to quite a large extent and, and focus on a more individualistic sort of individual relationship with God. You know, some people compare Salafi Muslims to Protestants, so there's a certain degree of commonality there. Um, so, so that's that's one side. And so Anglicanism never really um, be partly, I mean, there's many factors probably involved, partly because it's so wedded to the state, um, mm. partly because it was so tepid and half-believing already. It it was so much impossible to disentangle it from culture. And since you mentioned Scruton earlier, um, I think this, this was his conclusion, really, in his book on the Church of England, that its decline couldn't really be reversed, because even if Christianity declined, it wouldn't be, uh, sorry, even if Christianity in Britain were to revive, yeah. um, it, it wouldn't be specifically Anglican, because Anglicanism was this cultural melee that... Right really be retrieved unless you were unless you inherited it and people are not inheriting it yes and those those are areas of christian life in britain that are actually advancing and growing and there are some particularly in london that tend to be based yes. on immigrant communities so uh you, you might have black african christianity you might have christianity uh from you know uh south america and so on they're not really uh expressions of traditional anglicanism at least in church of england's terms so yeah. uh yeah uh, yeah that's interesting um can I, can I just ask about books uh, for a second, subject we, we're both uh, uh, interested in. Um, what would be your book recommendations to non-Muslims uh, who, uh, you know, an intelligent non-Muslim uh, who shows an interest in Islam, what would you recommend they read? Um, well, most of what I'd recommend would probably be the same things that are usually recommended. You know, everyone mentions Martin Lings's biography of the prophet. Um, uh, Tariq Ramadan, despite the controversy about it, doesn't detract from the value of his works, has a very good sort of simple primer on Islam. Um, perhaps for your audience, you know, who are interested, I, I assume, in connections between different religious traditions or who have a traditionalist bent, um, I, I do think the works of the, the neo-traditionalist um, movement in Islam, many of whom are, are converts like myself, Timothy Winter, also known as Adil Hakim Murad, uh, Hamza Yusuf, Umar Farouk Abdallah, um, a lot of their work is uh, very interesting from this uh, cultural perspective. Well, well, just to unpack the meaning of the word neo-traditionalist, uh, they are traditionalists, but just in a contemporary setting. Is that what you mean? I mean, roughly, this ter is a term of art. A neo-traditionalist is usually taken to mean people that are self-consciously traditional, uh, mm -hmm. so, so not modernizers or on the other end of the spectrum on the, of the Salafi tendency, mm -hmm. but in an accommodating way. They want to preserve, uh, Timothy Winter calls it the root epistemology, so the, the method of deriving um, conclusions about morals, law, etc., but not necessarily copying by rote the opinions of medieval scholars. Right. So, yes, it's the methodology that's retained without necessarily the conclusions of the particular... Right. Matters or, or whatever. Yeah, uh, when those conclusions are a matter of complete consensus. Yeah, yeah, and obviously there's a, there's a context in the UK which uh, perhaps traditional 
uh, scholars wouldn't know about uh, context in the West or in England. So it needs to be contextualized. Yes, that's exactly. Contextualizing tradition is very important. Yeah. Right, right. But I noticed you didn't mention Guy Eaton, who I'm passionate about. Is that, was that deliberate? Uh, a deliberate no, no, it wasn't a deliberate omission. I mean, there's so many that one could mention. But yeah, his, his yeah. work, uh, I've read some of it, is, is very valuable uh, yeah. as well. Although the, he, there are some people who criticise his perennialism, of course, and I, I don't. Uh, well, uh, Martin Lings one might criticise for that reason yeah. too. Um, it, it's interesting. I mean, uh, the the current generation of scholars I cited, the three I mentioned there, uh, Winter, Yusuf, and Abdallah, are uh, almost the intellectual heirs of people like Guy Eaton and Lings, but they've largely rejected the perennialism in favour of a much oh, yeah. more nuanced position that manages to see a lot of value in other religions while still holding them to be ultimately mistaken. Yes, yeah, so I, I, uh, Sheikh uh, Hamza Yusuf, I've seen on YouTube video, very explicit rejection and criticism yeah. of yeah. Uh, perennialism. He simply won't have anything to do with it and never has, he says. So, yeah, that, that, that would be a, a very, very, very real difference. Um, well, perhaps I could just move on to um, being Muslim and uh, English uh, in the UK today. Um, do you, I mean, I, I don't feel particularly, I don't feel alienated uh, from the, the community in general, although I'm still English, obviously. Um, do you think that is a hopeful, there, there's a hopeful sign of integration and, and, and uh, diversity within the Muslim communities in Britain? Is it a hopeful sign for the future? And, and what, what challenges do you see still facing us? Uh, obviously, yeah. there are challenges at the moment in the media, literally, with a clampdown on yeah, yeah. any protests uh, to support uh, the Palestinians. But uh, apart from that, uh, what are the ongoing issues do you think that face us as in, uh, indigenous English Muslims going forward? So it was specifically about uh, so-called indigenous Muslims, people who've entered Islam from a you know, British background. I mean, this is um, I, I suppose that the challenge there is, is, is really, I think, cultural creation. It, it's creating a narrative. So we have this, this conception that, that is you know, pretty popularly shared. Well, what does roughly a British Catholic look like or a British Anglican or a British atheist or British Muslim? And, and British Muslim, the, the conception relates to ethnicity, right? And it's become ethnicized. Yeah. So what we need to do is, is really create a narrative of, well, okay, what roughly what does a um, I'm not sure what the, the best term would be, but what does a uh, British new Muslim or whatever you want to call it, what does that look like? What set of uh, you know cultural norms, tropes, um, cultural production do we mentally associate with that? Where, where does that fit in our mental map of communities? And, and currently it doesn't have a place, but there's mm -hmm. very interesting work being done by people like Timothy Winter um, at the Cambridge Muslim College, for example. And I believe there are now other communities around uh, at uh, the Cambridge Mosque as well is, is linked to that, and um, uh, where, where you know converts actually meet regularly, and, and there is this work of cultural production slowly happening. Um, yeah. But I think more, perhaps more more conscious work um, by more people needs to be done to to really bring this about. Because if you think about this from the standpoint of da'wah, you know, of invitation to Islam as well, um, throughout history it wasn't although there were some, it was generally not isolated individuals like like ours, if I dare say, who entered Islam. It was communities, and they did so because it, they had this conception of what it meant that was communally and culturally embedded, and that hasn't been created yet. Gosh, no, that's a very interesting insight, because, yes, we are very individualistic, aren't we, you, yeah. you and I, in our approach. We, we, we had our own unique individual journeys into, into Islam. But as you say before, it was a, a much more community or communal uh, entering into Islam. So that, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that before like that. And you referenced Cambridge Muslim College, which I really wanted to sort of, 
you know, appreciate uh, for the extraordinary work they're doing. It's not just Abdul Hakim around Tim Winter, of course, but there are other, uh, well, many other um, academics there. A number of them are English or British, might be Scottish, um, uh, there too, who are a rising generation of Islamic intelligentsia or uh, uh, ilm, you know, the, the, the ulama, I should say, in the UK. And they are very sophisticated and very well educated. Mm. That's not sounding too patronizing. You know, they're, they're fully conversant with the Western tradition and the Islamic tradition. Um, pretty much like the Zaytuna College, perhaps in California, is attempting to do uh, you know, what they call the liberal tradition and uh, the Islamic tradition, bringing these into conversation rather than polarizing them or rejecting one in favor of the other. So I think that's a very positive uh, development, actually, for the future. Yeah, yeah. And it ties back to what I mentioned earlier regarding my research, that, that liberalism is, has these many faces and there are certain ways in which we would never want to combine or, or have a conversation with, well, unless it's a critical conversation with certain elements of liberalism, but there are also um, traditions in liberalism that to a certain extent, um, one might argue that Muslim communities should embrace or accept in a qualified way, like Zaytuna are, are doing with their... Mm. Um, the way in which they've they've talked about American liberalism and the Constitution and so forth. So, yeah, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I mean, just finally, can I ask about the intellectual challenges to to Islam at the moment? It's not necessarily an English uh, Muslim issue. Uh, um, I, I think I remember talking to Hamza Zorzis about this uh, about the the new atheism as, and as a challenge to uh, Muslims. Um, and he seemed to think this was much less of a challenge now. I, I know Dawkins is still around on Twitter and doing his stuff, but he seems to have been so roundly refuted and challenged and put in his box, if you like, even by other atheists who uh, are, are pretty disenchanted with his, uh, you know, uh, the way he seems to connect atheism with science. And they think that's wholly illegitimate. But so if, if maybe not the new atheism, what uh, we, we now, for, for people like Hamza Zorzis, uh, the new centre stage is uh, militant secular liberalism uh, and its attempt yes, to hijack, yes, yes. hijack Islam and do what it has actually done very successfully, many would think, with many Christian groups, uh, which is to secularize them completely and turn them into secular liberal uh, movements with a religious veneer, with a sprinkling of Christianity on top. But basically they are indistinguishable in terms of the fundamentals of belief and metaphysics and morality. So would you agree with that analysis or do you think you have another perspective? Um, largely would agree, yes. And, and new atheism never, I think was never really particularly profound on an intellectual level, had a little bit of popular influence. Yeah. This is a very incendiary hatred of religion, but it, hmm. it, it doesn't really seem culturally relevant anymore. And there's this movement in, among intellectuals now towards what is called uh, post-secularism. The idea being that, that traditional secular narratives like those of Dawkins are somehow outdated. They don't take into account the full complexity and um, the, the nuanced ways in which things develop. Even looking at ex-Anglicans, as you mentioned earlier, very often people uh, don't move directly to any kind of Dawkins-like atheism. They might identify as generic Christians, or they might say they have no religion, but they still believe in some sort of higher power, yeah. or they believe in ghosts yeah. or fairies. Yeah. So <laughs> it's this sort of very much ultra-pluralistic, messy framework that we find ourselves in. And and I agree with you, the biggest intellectual challenge, I think, is exactly this. It's it's certain movements that, that use liberal rhetoric and, and in certain ways are liberal, but in certain other ways are extremely illiberal. Um, mm. Certain aspects of LGBT movements or feminist movements are profoundly illiberal in that they believe that everyone should be strongly encouraged, if not forced, to 
adopt particular views on what marriage or sexuality or the human good in general is, and and finding a way to challenge them appropriately that doesn't involve throwing out the yeah. the, the pluralistic baby with the bathwater um, and embracing some kind of anti-liberal authoritarian stance, I think is the intellectual challenge of our time. Mm, very interesting. I mean, can I ask a slightly more personal question? Your experience of academia uh, as a Muslim, um, do you find that there is a, a space, uh, dare I say, a home, but is, is there a recognition that you have a voice that is distinctive as a Muslim? Uh, or is it really quite embarrassingly just overlooked? And well, what are those aspects of what you're saying to do with morality or ethics or political theory, which are basically Western in, in nature? I mean, do you find that there is respect? I mean, by respect, I don't mean a nod to diversity, but I mean a serious engagement with you as an Islamic uh, writer and thinker. Are we at that stage yet, or is it still a bit tokenish? Well, uh, I would say that, that my academic research isn't exactly Islamic, just because I'm a Muslim doesn't entail that it's Islamic. Um, because what I'm trying to do is, is draw on a particular which I keep mentioning this particular aspect of the liberal tradition that mm. tries to abstract from these differences for certain purposes. So not to deny them or to be relativistic, but to bracket them and say, well, look, you may be a Muslim, maybe a Christian, maybe something else, but um, let's talk about what we can try to at least pragmatically agree on about how to get on with each other and order our common political life in which we find ourselves, whether we like it or not. And I'm trying to say certain things about that that are um, sensitive to beliefs that we have as Muslims, but actually the, the, the controversial aspect of that is, if, if I were to, to mention in passing that I'm a Muslim, hardly anyone would be concerned. If I were to mention in passing that I disagree with the morality of certain sexual acts, for example, then some, by no means all, but some academics would find that very alarming. So, so this is more the issue. It's more traditionalism in the looser sense or, or social conservatism that is sometimes beleaguered in the academy than Islam per se, at least in the fields. Yeah. Yes, because then traditional Christians would face the same challenges then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, as, as, so you mentioned something that I picked up, maybe I misunderstood you, uh, about a kind of uh, a, a liberalism which is which which generally uh, – is not exclusivist, that it includes many possible positions. Is this not John Locke's second treatise of government, which I read a few months ago, where he, he seems to be speaking about that, where, where you know specific beliefs are not mandated, there's a common space. Mm, yeah. uh, is this not kind of Locke Mark II that you're... Um, yeah, perhaps one could interpret Locke in line with it. Yeah, but, I mean, the, the framework in academia that's dominant now is, is that of John Rawls, and the way he he described it was, um, so he said religions or, or other beliefs that you have, and this this would I would argue include you know permissive moral beliefs. They're all just conceptions of the good, is the phrase he used. They're beliefs about what mm. is the purpose of human life, and so what we try to do on a political level is find a way that we can disagree about those things peacefully and civilly and respect one another, and that's probably very consonant with certain things that Locke said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just lastly, I, I, is there not a fundamental paradigm incompatibility, though, between the Islamic perspective and any species or variant of liberalism in that Muslims do believe in an all encompassing worldview and way of life, deen, as well as a metaphysics, yeah. uh, which is not tolerant of some things. I mean, like John Locke, interestingly, was not was very intolerant of atheists yeah. and Catholics uh, uh, in his letter on tolerance 
ironically kind of called um but it, it, islam itself is is uh you know has its red lines and yeah. how does one accommodate red lines of that fundamental nature within this kind of liberal paradigm that you're exploring well if your question is on on a pragmatic level of, of how do we do it practically i think muslims living in the west pretty much do a good job of this already yeah. well, I mean, theoretically in terms of your exploring the issue because obviously in practice we do but we have neighbors who may drink alcohol right. or may do all sorts of things that's fine we live with them because we coexist uh, and we're supposed yeah. to be neighbors now i meant more in terms of your your writing and your thinking yeah well i mean obviously there are there are traditions in the sharia itself that that mm would say, well, look, if, if non-Muslims wish to drink alcohol and whatever, that's not really our concern, and they have the right to govern their own communities, even, even within traditional Islamic policies. Yeah. And then there is a great deal of scholarship that doesn't, um, that doesn't depart from the, the central things on which Sunni Muslims fundamentally agree, that, that looks at different ways of um, conceptualizing Muslim politics than existed in, in say, the Ottoman Empire or, or previous um, historic Islamic policies. So, for example, Hamza Yusuf that we mentioned earlier has made the argument that the constitution of Medina should be more of the framework for dealing with a pluralistic society than the traditional notion of, uh, of dimitude, for instance. And I, I don't claim to know if, from the standpoint of Islamic scholarship, that's correct or good or not, because that's not my area of expertise. But there are resources within Islam that are not unremittingly hostile to pluralism on a political level. Mm. Okay, very interesting. Um, well, well, finally, um, do you have any final thoughts in terms of your own uh, contribution to Islamic discourse in the UK? As, uh, what can we benefit from uh, your writings? And do you have anything online that we can go to? Uh, I mentioned this article, which I will link to in First Things. But do you have any other resources? And are you writing a book? And um, could you give us a clue about what we might expect from you in the future then? Well, um, of course, you can find other journalistic pieces I've written on, on this and similar topics online. Um, and certainly I'm in the early stages of my of my um, PhD thesis, uh, but it will certainly at some point be published, hopefully, God willing, and, and will, I hope, shed some light on these questions. And, and I would like to think my contribution is actually almost um, bridging that gap between the, the contribution to Islamic discourse and the contribution to wider societal discourse that that I think that Muslims should take a part in that isn't just defensive. And, and often when Muslims are involved in political discourse, it's from the standpoint of this has become, something becomes intolerable and then we protest, something becomes yeah, unacceptable. Yeah. And then we, we say, you're, well, you're violating our rights. And then we make a, a narrowly liberal argument that doesn't really engage with the deeper narratives going on and we we come late to the party and don't really understand where these ideas came from and their genesis and why they're being promoted in this way so i think mm -hmm. muslims need to be more proactive in in shaping the the liberal policy not not just reacting to it no i think you made a really important point there yes it is just quite reactive and that's because of the asymmetry of power in our yeah, society yeah, of course it is yeah we, we 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 react because we're you know we're forced to react because you know our children then are forced to you know be uh, to undergo certain lessons and certain subjects and this is contrary to traditional values or islamic values so we're reacting against that we, we don't we're not setting the agendas what i'm trying to say right uh, right but we do have opportunities to acquire yeah. more power and to set agendas more um yes so, so one should never just say well one should never adopt this this sort of victim mentality of well we don't have power that's why these bad things happen well power is contestable and fluid 
Yeah, and without getting controversial and political, I don't want to do, I seriously don't want to do that here, but, you know, we, we do elect politicians, uh, certain le Muslim leaders in Scotland and London, the mayor, etc., yeah. who profess uh, Islam and yet appear to many to, uh, yeah. on any of these issues, to only teach what militant secular liberalism requires them to teach, yeah. without exception. It's like not even nuanced. It's like... That uh, they appear to be completely uh, assertively promoting these very agendas, which many were considered to be completely a, a hostile or, or contrary to the teachings of Islam. So these are people with power, and they're Muslims, and they're not doing what you're saying. So we have a this disconnect between the broader constituency and their representatives in Scotland and London and wherever. And this is exactly the problem that I'm indirectly, through an academic lens, trying to address. That that. We we have this situation in large part because many Muslim politicians they don't they genuinely don't understand that this nuanced position is available and mm -hmm. and that taking a yes there are pressures on them obviously but all of these pressures are fluid and constantly changing they don't fully understand that it is possible to take a traditional Muslim view on the morality of a certain issue but to decline to advocate for its political enforcement for example and therefore they have to endorse the liberal morality. So, so there's this whole layer of confusion that that makes these things very difficult. I, I did. There was one candidate to for the uh, the uh, the Scottish uh, the SNP. Yeah. Uh, I think she was, she was a Christian or a Calvinist or something who yeah. who did actually uh, articulate her her personal disagreement with the LGBT agenda, and she wasn't uh, crucified, shall we say, in the ways that uh, exactly. the, the the winner was when he was grilled. I remember on Sky repeatedly by a very hostile interviewer saying, "What do you think about?" this issue, this dodgy issue. And, you know, he kept on trying to deal with it. You know, she, he was subjected to that because he was a Muslim, presumably, and she wasn't because she was a, a yeah. white Christian. And I have to make the point here as well, that there are so many things that as Muslims we think are morally wrong, but no one cares that much. So no one really says, what do you think about drinking beer or eating yeah. pork? You know, why? Well, okay, well, um, certain sexual acts that we think are wrong, we think are wrong in the same way that we think drinking beer and eating pork are wrong, and yet those ones become the subject of political controversy, yeah. Yeah. and we don't have the wherewithal to point this out. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, actually. Uh, well, because I, I think that these issues are seen as non-negotiable non prerequisites for holding office in the way that one's opinions on not eating pork are not, because it's, it's not political, is it, eating pork? But sexuality and gender, you know, when we go back to Jermaine Greer or so, I mean, it has a genealogy, which is part of an ongoing liberal yeah. ideology, which has decades. But but eating pork has never been an issue since the first century, probably, for Christians. Well, since drinking before. alcohol was an issue with the, uh, in the late 19th century. Yeah. I mean, so, so these things, who defines what what is political? Well, look, it, it's obviously related to power, but... By shaping the landscape of ideas, we, we contribute to that and we can help to to redefine that. And I hope that one day society might accept you know, that a diversity of views about sexual morality is as inevitable as a diversity of views about drinking alcohol and eating pork and, and take an almost analogous view of politicians' views on those subjects in certain ways. That, that would be uh, uh, very encouraging. That will be very encouraging. Uh, whether or not it can happen now, uh, I tend to think what well, many people think that we've gone through a, a cultural revolution. Some, mm -hmm. have, uh, some have seen the analogy with Mao Zedong's cultural revolution in, in China, of course, but by which they mean a total uh, totalizing revolution where 
dissent is punished rather than simply just a change of values where oh we believe in things now yeah so it's weaponized uh, and dissenters are punished as i say so whether or not that space can coexist with this highly militant form of secularism that we have yeah. now um this is the whole this is one of the whole issues that i have that we tend to take this quite defeatist narrative that's overly generalizing and say well look society is now based on this cultural revolution that is too militant and and therefore it's all hopeless and and all we can do is either just react or, or passively accept what's going on, or, or then it, things tend to polarize between rejecting all of society or going along with all of it. Whereas I think we always need to disaggregate that not all of society is oppressively secular, not all of it is intolerant of different views. There are many people, as you pointed out, who are Christians or not religious, who dissent from this, this intolerant version of secularism. Um, and we should be building bridges with those people as well. No, I think you're absolutely right. Building bridges, even alliances. Uh, I think uh, you're involved in the Alliance Defending Freedom, which right. I must confess, forgive my ignorance, I know nothing about. What, what is this Alliance Defending Freedom? Uh, um, well, so they're primarily active in the United States, but have a UK branch, and they essentially defend religious freedom, but with a particular emphasis on challenging this, this coercive uh, militant secularism. Um, recent cases they've been involved in were people who were arrested for protesting or even just praying outside abortion clinics yeah. for example yeah so it's hard to believe actually that is the case a woman was actually arrested and charged for silently yeah. praying like in her head um in front of an abortion clinic outside yeah. the street and was actually arrested uh, and uh, subsequently uh, of the ferrari i think she was de-arrested or whatever yeah so this, uh, it, it, that that point, I want to actually say something on that. I think it's very important. Is that the headline is always, "Oh, so and so is arrested for expressing a conservative religious view." This is an Orwellian nightmare. We're all doomed, you know. But then, if you actually look into the story more, usually the charges are dropped, or in court they're found to have done nothing wrong. And and this yeah. more encouraging side is usually sidelined. So we yeah. focus on all the bad news. Gets sensational. You have a good point. However. Uh, although you're right, uh, and we should look more more closely at these cases, uh, and, and organisations like Christian Concern, uh, although they're militantly anti-Muslim, unfortunately, do nevertheless mm. are very active legally in getting these people off uh, the yeah. charges. But the, the the chilling effect, nonetheless, yeah. on yeah. the population at large, not just Muslims, but everyone, Absolutely. is... We, we can see which way the wind's blowing here. So who wants to be arrested in the first place, even if they think, oh, well, I'm going to get get off in the end, thanks right. to the administration. Quite right. Quite right. But I do have to make here a point that is that is not fashionable for Muslims to make. That is, that there is, many argued also, there was a chilling effect about criticisms of Islam itself, that they were wrongly shouted down as Islamophobia. And actually, there's a lot of empirical truth to that, that there were people... Um, you know, prosecuted or or chilled in various ways because they said certain things about Islam or Muslims that were ultimately found not to be illegal, but were controversial or politically incorrect. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have to endorse any of those criticisms um, to see that there is a certain analogy there. And the reason that these anti-Islamic movements gained prominence despite um, mm -hmm. this chilling effect was just because people who people who were against Muslims were strong and organized and were determined to shape discourse and gain power. But mm -hmm. People who are socially conservative and religious generally are weak and disorganized and not determined. And, and I think yeah. we, we always underestimate the role that real human agency plays in these things and, and ascribe it to these grand meta-historical forces that we can do nothing about. Yes. In reality, it comes down to groups of people deciding to do the right thing and organizing and committing to action. Well, that's a very uh, optimistic, actually, uh, uh description actually and i'm wondering if this will work i, I wasn't going to mention names but i will uh a chap called douglas murray an englishman like us yeah. 
um, who uh, is now, he calls himself an atheist, calls himself a gay atheist. I say that because I think it's underlying a lot of his historic animosity towards yeah. Islam. Um, and yet you and I, I mean, you know, we could, we could talk to him. We understand him, I think, culturally, mm -hmm. Islamically. I've read his book, for example, on the, 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 the self-inflicted suicide of, of Europe, the idea that Europe has no longer any narrative, metaphysical narrative to offer the world. It is, it is existentially nihilist, and yet it's still got to keep going. And, and he, as an atheist, of course, he has nothing to offer. But it frustrates me that people like yourself and myself aren't able to have a conversation with him, to say, yes, we understand. We're, we, we are Englishmen too, like you, and yet you are wrong, sir, about Islam being a threat. In fact, it does offer answers to the deepest existential needs of the European peoples. Um, yes. And 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 this is something, you know, but the, it's frustrating that he's just a guy who appears on TV and we're not able to have this conversation. And, of course, he continually uh, takes snipes at uh, Muslims and Islam, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Uh, interesting example, because he... Roger Scruton, again, is an interesting figure because he was close both to um, Douglas yeah. Murray, you're talking about, but also to Hamza Youssef um, yes. as well. Yes. So he almost bridged the divide between the ethnocentric secular militants and, mm. well, and, and traditionalists and Muslims. Yeah. Um, now, I do think that means that there is sort of, by the law of what logicians call transitivity, perhaps we can also find a connection with people like Douglas Murray, as you're suggesting. Yeah, yes. we do, you know, we do share certain beliefs about the nature of decline in Europe. And and I mean, really, I just think that there are not enough um, Muslim thinkers who are both able and willing to engage in this sort of discussion. Either we don't have the cultural context to engage in it, or yes. if we do, we're not willing because we, we're defeatist or we're reactive or whatever, or we have various attitudes that hold us back. So yes. definitely he's someone we should have discourse with. I mean, Jordan Peterson, again, one could mention, it's encouraging that I think he also had yes. a discussion with Hamza Yusuf, or was that one cancelled? I don't remember. But but people like this who who are he did uh, he had it by the way. Uh, I, I've seen the video. It's actually quite good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so th th then uh, yeah, it's a slightly um, uh, improper, perhaps, to say this, but you, you would perhaps be an obvious person then to talk to uh, um, the aforementioned person who Douglas Murray would you not? Or is that not something? Well, you, you're welcome to send an invitation on my behalf next time you meet if you're if you're close. Yeah, no, I, I'd like to talk to him. I, I love to have as a, I love to have him as a guest on this channel to actually have yeah. it out as two Englishmen talking about. But he, he's he's on his own level. I mean, he's on a, yeah. on a much higher level than me. But uh, I, I would I would dearly love to see English Muslims who are suitably uh, qualified, shall we say? Yeah. Like, I, mean, I, I would say it doesn't have to be English Muslims, like no, no, no. I, but you yeah. have the cultural context and are able to understand. Yes. Yeah, yes, it's important. Yeah. yeah, absolutely right. No, in, in, indeed, you, you're right about that. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll, we'll uh, keep on praying for that uh, possibility yeah. because, um, yeah, who knows what can c come out of that. Well, um, it's yeah. been an hour and uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's fantastic uh, talking to you, uh, Jacob. Uh, great fun. And there's so much more we could talk about, of course, um, because, hey, life is complicated and there's an awful lot to say. But inshallah, maybe another time. Um, but I do want to thank you very much. Uh, I know you're very busy uh, for coming on BT and sharing your uh, experience. So I will uh, link to uh, the resources in the description below where people can follow up on your work, which is really worth reading, actually, beautifully written. Um, and uh, just thank you very much indeed. Okay, it's been a, been a pleasure. Thank you. Until next time.